The word microservices started getting used after a series of events. Companies were moving to cloud virtual machines. Those virtual machines got broken up into containers, and the containers fit to the size of the service. Services that are more narrowly defined take up smaller containers and can be packed more densely into the virtual machines, hence the term microservices. As this change to software architecture has occurred, the DevOps movement has encouraged organizations to have better relationships between development and operations. Continuous deployment leads to fewer painful outages. Improved monitoring tools make it easier for developers to take on some of the pain that was previously centralized in operations. Several months ago, I attended the Microservices Practitioner Summit, which brings together engineers who are working with microservices at their companies. The conference was organized by Austin Gunter and Richard Lee of DataWire. In this episode, they joined me for a conversation about microservices and the summit. Software Engineering Daily is having our third meetup, Wednesday, May 3rd at Galvanize in San Francisco. The theme of this meetup is fraud and risk in software. We're going to talk about ad fraud. We're going to talk about fraud that occurs at Coinbase. And we're going to have great food, engaging speakers, and a friendly intellectual atmosphere. To find out more, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup. Austin Gunter and Richard Lee are organizers of the Microservices Practitioner Summit. Austin and Richard, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So we've probably done 50 shows relating to microservices, and in this episode, I'd like to take a broader view and understand some of the historical context, especially since you guys organized a conference around microservices. People started using the word microservices after a series of events, and I want to hear both of your opinions as to whether this is the correct series of events that led to microservices. From my perspective, companies were moving to the cloud. It was virtual machines. These VMs got broken up into containers, and the containers can fit to whatever the size of the service is. And that led to the shrinking of programs because you could more closely fit the memory footprint of your service to the size of the container. And that led to the idea of microservices. Is that an accurate historical retrospective to how we got to microservices? Well, Jeff, I think that's an accurate perspective around the technology trend that got us to microservices. But the other trend I would point to is also the organizational trend. And what I mean by that is that lots of cloud-native companies like Amazon or Netflix they were running to the problem where their application was getting more and more complex and they needed to write more and more features. And to do that, you hire more and more engineers. But then the question becomes, how do you actually ensure your 500th engineer is as productive as the first engineer? And we all know that that's actually pretty hard to do. And so organizationally, they face this challenge of scale. And that's when they started thinking about how do we take this big, huge thing and breaking it into smaller chunks. And at the same time, that technology trend that you mentioned was happening. And so they were able to actually capitalize on some technology innovations that weren't possible when they started building their cloud application, right? When when Amazon launched, you know, there was no such thing as a virtual machine or let alone containers. And so it was a combination, I'd say, of organizational scale challenges as well as technology evolution, if that makes sense. What did the companies look like before this microservices trend got popularized? I think it was uh, very traditional development, right? A very traditional SDLC where they would have teams of engineers that would work on different branches, but all on one big code base. And that code base would get released on a predictable cadence, whether it was weekly, monthly, quarterly. And there was a team of release engineers whose job it was to integrate all the different features into, quote-unquote, the stable release. So there are some companies that proudly remain monolithic. They have a mono repo, and they argue that this is a more productive way of doing development. 
What's the trade-off there, and what are those companies that advocate the monorepo approach? So I think, by the way, I think you, first of all, I think you can do microservices successfully even with a monorepo. And Twitter is a great example, or Google is a great example where they have a monorepo. Um, the key thing with microservices is that each team is able to release independently. And so, so with Twitter, every time there's a new feature, that team that finishes that feature doesn't need to check with the other teams. Same with Google or any other company that's adopted microservices. I would say that the benefit, though, of a traditional monolith where you have a single application and a single code base is that it is simpler, right? So if you have a small team of three, four, or five people, it really doesn't make sense to break your application into lots of little services because at the end of the day, you have a small development team. You don't really have a problem with organizational scale. It's only as you start to grow and you have 10, 15, 20, 25 engineers, and for every company, that inflection point is different, but it's only when you hit that inflection point where your engineers are starting to run into problems where they need to coordinate with another engineer to ship a feature or architecturally running into some limitations around um, languages and platforms, that's when microservices, I think, become much more compelling. Jeff, Jeff, one of the funny anecdotes is, is DHH, who has really famously come out against a lot of things about, uh, about the size and the shape of tech companies. And he's come out against VC funding and he's also come out against microservices as sort of, uh, like an outspoken critic of that. Um, and, you know, like the, the example here is that he's running with, with, uh, Basecamp a fairly small company that's not going to be running into those issues. So his point about the magnificent monolith and that medium article that he wrote, it works great for what they're trying to do. It's sort of like, it's just not the right place to think about scaling with microservices. Austin, you put on the microservices summit recently, you were largely responsible for the organization and the selection of the speakers. How are you choosing the presenters for the microservices summit. And by the way, these are great talks. I sat through several and I watched several online. They're all posted online. Uh, and they were really good microservices practitioner summit. I'm sorry. And they were very practical, uh, presentations for people who are actually working with microservices. So how did you select the people who presented? It's a really good, great question. And yeah, people can watch all the videos on microservices.com. They're all available there and on YouTube. Um, I think, you know, your, the questions that you were asking about, like, what are microservices? When do they make sense? What's the difference between microservices and a mono repo? And, and then the answers that Richard gave you, I think, illustrate the need for, um, People who have been there and done that, and, and that's why you know highlighting the word practitioner is really important. Um, there was, we saw a need in the industry for a place where engineers who had actually done the work, scaled their companies, re-architected um, from microservices, distributed development, distributed systems perspective. We, we saw the need for those people to be able to come together and share what they had learned with the wider community. Um, because it's one thing to say, hey, you should break apart your monolith because of microservices, um, but that leaves it in the buzzword realm. And so we were very focused on um, finding speakers who had a lot of firsthand experience getting their, um, getting their hands dirty, solving these technical challenges. Um, finding the speakers was a team effort. There were ideas um, that came from a lot of different places about who had done really, really interesting work. Um, like Matt Klein was a really great example because of what um, he, you know, coming from Twitter um, and then working on their microservices stack and then saying, well, I want to change some of the things that Twitter had done um, when he joined Lyft and working on um, Lyft's Envoy. He's got an amazing wealth of just firsthand knowledge um, that he can that he can offer um, that he can offer engineers who are trying to solve similar problems. His talk was fantastic. Um, we've also we also had uh, Susan Fowler who was at Uber and is now at Stripe um, and wrote um, 
wrote a book, uh, wrote an O'Reilly book about, about microservices um, and standardizing um, standardizing your architecture that way. The When I talked to her about potentially speaking, I said, what would you do over again if you were having to start from scratch? Um, how would you set up a team that's, that's starting from scratch around, around architecting for microservices? How would you set them up for success? Um, and those were some of the things that, that she talked about. My philosophy, like my overarching philosophy in finding these speakers was um, find really, really talented engineers, um, look for as much diversity as you possibly can, and then all I did was have a conversation with these folks, say, what are some problems that you've solved that you don't see people talking about enough, or what problems are you currently solving that you're excited about that you want to talk about? And when you're bringing smart people who are doing interesting work together, um, it's really easy to get them to want to share what they're working on um, without having to guide that too much. In watching these talks, I saw plenty of similarities between the different presenters and the different situations that people were in. What about the differences? What what were the conflicts in what different people said? Or where, where were the situations where somebody said, you know, I understand what that previous speaker said, but I completely disagree with them. What were the fundamental disagreements about things that are going on in the microservices ecosystem? Well, uh, I think there's a, a bunch of different ones. And I think a lot of them are basically boil down to different organizational challenges. And one of my favorites was contrasting Nick Bender's talk. Nick is the chief architect at New Relic with Susan Fowler's talk, where she talked about her experiences at Uber. And Uber, when she joined, was going through hypergrowth. They were going from 850 engineers to 1,700 engineers in six months. And as a consequence, it was really the technology wild, wild west. And culturally, I think that's a little bit of Uber as well. And, and so her approach and recommendation was a clear set of guardrails to ensure that everyone's aligned to a common architecture and goal. And if you look at Nick Bender's talk, New Relic, high growth cloud native company, but not growing as quickly as Uber, certainly not in terms of hiring engineers. And so what they decided to do was to literally let the engineers organize themselves into their own teams. And I think that that approach worked for New Relic, Susan's approach worked for Uber, but you probably don't really mix the two. Did you have a favorite war story that you saw in the presentations, each of you? Because I, I thought a lot of these talks follow the pattern of, okay, we got into this horrendous situation and here's how we got out of it and here's the architectural lesson that we learned along the way. Maybe if, maybe if each of you have a story that uh, you heard at the practitioner summit that was interesting to you, I'd, I'd love to hear it relayed. Well, I think Nick's talk was one of my favorites and the reason it was one of my favorites was because he spent his entire talk talking about the people and cultural aspect and I think that's a really important underrated part of microservices because fundamentally you're taking decisions that historically used to be made at a very senior level like when do we release that's a team decision where you have a release manager and your vp of engineering and everything and you're basically saying it's no longer a vp level decision it's really a team level decision and that's a huge organizational shift and i loved how nick talked about that kind of decision-making and pushing that down to the leaf nodes, if you will. And that was just fascinating to see how they were willing to really experiment, try something, they made some mistakes, but they figured out a lot of things along the way. And um, to me, that was definitely one of my favorites. I also know plenty of people who thought it was terrible. So, you know, your <laughs> mileage may vary. That was, well, it was really interesting hearing different attendees talk about uh, various talks that were their favorites or their, or their least favorites, because um, you can almost tell where they're at in, in, in terms of like the, the type of organization that they have and the size, the scale and the, and the problems that they're solving based on which conversations they thought were uh, or which, which talks they thought were more relevant. Like, because um, Nix was talking very organizationally about microservices. Um, rather than get like being being more technical and talking about things from a, from a code perspective and an architecture perspective, and I think 
one of one of the things that was interesting was hearing some attendees who really who like didn't like Nick's talk, um, and and I realized it was because they um, they're still thinking about things from a like an architectural perspective rather than understanding how organizationally. Um, you know, or or understanding that microservices is also an organizational people centric architecture, not just a technical one. Um, so there was, you know, I think there's this, which goes back to the whole thing about like, you know, are microservices right for your organization? Yes and no. It really depends on where you're at and what problems you're trying to solve. Um, and it doesn't help that the whole thing's like gotten a little buzzwordy that people don't understand. There's a lot of nuance in there. Yes, yeah, certainly there is the. You know, there's this organizational shift. There's this technology shift. It's hard to decipher which one's the cause and which one is the effect and how they intermingle with each other. But in any case, there are new technologies that have been enabled or necessitated in this move to microservices. One that comes to mind is the service proxying stuff that Matt Klein works on. Uh, Another is distributed tracing technology. Richard, given that you've been working in this space, developing products for as long as it's been around, what are the technologies that you're looking at right now most closely? Great question, Jeff. So the technologies that we um, see the most community momentum behind would be Kubernetes for container management and orchestration, uh, obviously Docker, and then from a... In the service proxy space, we see a lot of momentum behind Lyft Envoy. And I say that um, especially because we're seeing not just uh, companies adopting Envoy in in, in deploying it for their cloud-native application, but we're also seeing some commercial vendors picking up Envoy, putting real engineering resources into it. And so now you're starting to see an ecosystem of not just the engineers at Lyft maintaining it, but you're also starting to see contributions from Google or IBM or DataWire, all pushing patches, writing documentation, all pushing this into upstream Envoy. And I think the sign of a healthy community is that it's no longer dependent on a single entity to actually sponsor and drive the development forward. Service proxying, for those who haven't heard the episode that I did with Matt Klein or who haven't watched the talk on microservices.com. Service proxying is this idea where you have a program running on all of your hosts that adds a layer of enrichment to all of the inter-service communications, or it decodes the layer of enrichment from the microservice that sent the message. So you get this standardization of messaging between your different microservices. So you know, I worked at Amazon, and I remember at Amazon there was some kind of service proxying layer. I didn't really understand what it was doing at the time. You know, at, at, at Amazon, it's like the onboarding process takes six months because you're just like figuring out all these tools and technologies. And one of the things is, I believe, what you would call a service proxying layer where, you know, you're like, okay, well, every time I send a message from this server, why is all this stuff added? And it's like, oh, it's because that request is going through a service proxy, which is adding things like distributed tracing and whatnot. Um, so you also mentioned Kubernetes, and I think of Kubernetes as also this sort of standardizing layer because you, you know, you're putting all of your services in containers, you're using Kubernetes as the mass orchestration tool. Why is it that we need Kubernetes, but also a service proxying tool like Envoy? So Kubernetes, you need Kubernetes so that your containers have some place to run. You need to be able to manage the life cycle of those containers. So that's where Kubernetes really shines. The other question, which is how do the containers actually talk to each other, is a question that Kubernetes doesn't actually address. So the way I like to think about it is Kubernetes is where does my container run? And that's there's a whole bunch of questions um, and nuance to that, and that's what Kubernetes excels at. And then there's the question of how do my containers talk to each other? And talking to each other means how do I find the container? How do I, if the container doesn't respond to me, how do I retry? Um, all those kinds of things, that's the semantics that Envoy or Service Proxy provides. And so those are some of the essential pieces that you need. And the third piece that you need is actually how do you monitor all this stuff? Um, and I see things like Influx or Prometheus gaining quite a bit of traction there. Okay, so the the other question around 
Kubernetes, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk, I think it was around this time last year, six months ago or so, where people were starting to say, okay, it looks like Docker is, in some sense, getting obviated by Kubernetes, where everybody's using Kubernetes because it's the orchestration layer, and you're orchestrating Docker containers, but do they really need to be Docker containers? Maybe it could be a different type of container, uh, and it's for this this discussion is further complicated by the fact that Docker is a company that raised a ton of money, and you know I think they're probably they have plenty of money left over. They could do something different, but the obvious direction for them would have been the container orchestration tool, maybe some sort of SaaS tool using that container orchestration tool. That container orchestration tool that they built. Uh, which I think, what is it, uh, Docker Swarm, I think, was it. And um, and I don't think it's getting much traction. I think at this point, Kubernetes is kind of winning the war. Um, you, you could maybe say the same thing about Mesos. You know, I have plenty of people who, who say, look, you're looking at it wrong if you look at this as a winner-take-all sort of thing. Um, so, I, I don't know, maybe you want to uh, talk about that. But I, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm struggling to think of the right question to ask. But um, what's your asset, current assessment of the competitive landscape, uh, and where does Docker fit in going forward? So I think Docker as a container format is a universally accepted standard. Obviously, there's Rocket, uh, and I was excited to see how both Docker and Rocket are being incubated now by the Cloud Native Compute Foundation. Um, but I think. But to answer your question, I think Docker is still a very standard format for how you actually deploy software with its dependencies into some sort of runtime, whether it's Kubernetes or Mesos or Amazon ECS or what have you. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. And when we talk to clients and customers and we say, well, we depend on Docker, there's really not a lot of pushback, right? People say, well, that's that's obviously what you should be doing. Um, I think in terms of the commercial prospects, I agree with you. It seems that a lot of the community momentum has um, has sort of naturally gone to Kubernetes. Um, I wouldn't discount um, Docker just because there are a bunch of smart people at Docker. I'm sure they see the trend um, <laughs> yeah. even better than we do. Um, sure. But I, but I also think that Docker also has a whole bunch of other interesting technologies that, uh, and they're trying to build sort of a more robust ecosystem around Docker um, with Docker Hub, and they've got a huge team and, like you said, a lot of money. And so I think that there's probably a bunch of other things that they are doing besides Docker Swarm that could lead to um, sustainable commercial success. Um, and like you said, when you raise a billion dollars, it's a lot of money to spend. So Well, and I think this kind of uh, company trial can be quite beneficial in the long term because if it works out, if the company works out, which it probably will, they will have a sense of gratitude. It's not like Facebook or Google where it's been up and to the right the whole way. They have, there's, this is a stumbling block and this is the kind of stuff that can uh, make a company a lot stronger in the long run. Yeah, that which does not kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> right. So back to the Microservices Summit. So I've been doing this podcast for uh, a couple of years at this point, and um, I've gone to a number of conferences at this point. It feels like – so I haven't spent a whole lot of time in this space, but it certainly feels like the number of conferences is going up and up and up and up. Uh, Austin, how do you differentiate a conference these days? I think that as with everything in, in a developer community, it really comes down to the rubber meeting the road. Um, did you have the best possible speakers? And did you create um, a really inclusive, um, positive environment where engineers from all sorts of backgrounds and walks of life, um, different cultures, etc., can come together and attack a, a, a particular technical challenge or set of technical challenges in a, in a productive way and, and come away knowing that not only can they justify the, the, the cost of travel and the time away from work to their manager, but they're, they have new ideas and they're inspired about something that they can bring back to what they're actively working on. Um, 
part of the reason that we, you know, we've we kept the the microservices practitioner summit semi small was to foster a sense of of intimacy and community and connection there. Um, because you get to like a really, really massive conference and um, it's hard to like there's there's a lot of different talk tracks and the summit only had a single talk track. Um, and that allows people to focus on like they know what they're going to they, they know what the what talks are coming up next. And they're they're not sitting there like kind of doing the, the conference crapshoot of which talk do I go to? You know, like, is this one actually going to be valuable and useful for my time? Um Right, and you sit down to lunch, and you can talk to people with a shared understanding of what was just viewed. Right. Yeah, exactly. It, fo it fosters better conversations as well. Um, so, I think that you know that's one of the ways that we've done it with the summit is keeping it small. Um, Monitorama is kind of like one of our inspirations for that. It's like it's never going to be a huge conference. Um, the purpose is you're coming, you're going to learn about a specific set of things. You're going to be rubbing elbows with peers who are solving similar problems, have solved similar problems. So the quality of conversation can automatically be very, very high. Um, you sh you'll have a shared context about what you want to talk about, what you came to talk about. Um, and the other thing is that keeping it small that way and, and by kind of handpicking um, the speakers based on their, their background and their experience, we're able to keep the quality of, um, of talk very high as well because I'm more or less like I wasn't approving what people are going to talk about just for the record like I really like I I wanted to find good people that I knew were going to talk about intelligent interesting things um, but but I, and I think that's that's how you that's how you set that up but knowing that <clears throat> I'm sending you know I'm, I'm bringing all these attendees together you know like getting people in the room is, is a challenge as a conference organizer and and I believe that on, on the other end of that there's a commitment to making sure that when people leave they're like yeah heck yeah I love that um, I want to come back again and I want to tell some of my peers and my colleagues that this was a, a really worthwhile worthwhile use of time um, it's got to, I really think a lot of it has to just come down to the actual experience and, and fostering word of mouth that way. I've heard people say recently it's peak conference, there's too many conferences, but I don't think so. I, I think the developer community is expanding more rapidly than the number of conferences. And you look at something like Strata. Uh, I don't know if either of you have been to something the size of Strata, Strata plus Hadoop conference, but it's almost like you're at the Super Bowl, and there's so many people. The Expo Hall is this gigantic, several football field size room of vendors. And then you go there in the evening, and it's this, uh, you know, celebration of food and drink and sales deals being done. And it's totally different than the Microservices Practitioner Summit, albeit not worse. It's just completely different. And then if you go to something like Facebook F8 or Google I.O., it is this bacchanalia of food and drink and luxury and seduction by the giant corporation. And that is yet another different form of the conference. And what's so great about these things is they put you in meat space with other developers because so much of our interaction, especially with the increased emphasis on remote work, so much of our interaction is disjoint and virtual. And when you go to that meet space and you sit down with people, you have a different experience. You have a shared experience. You can have a really rapid transmission of information. I think what's what's funny about you asking this, like, or, or you phrasing this, is I um, I'm from Austin. I'm Austin from Austin, right? Haha. Ha, thanks, mom. And um, <laughs> yeah. By the way, I have like four or five friends from Austin named Austin who have the same thing. Like, I don't know if they're. I guess your mom did your mom did your mom literally think it was funny or what, what what's with that? Why is that a trend? I think it's just like Texas pride, to be honest. Um, so I, I think the answer the answer to your question is like I actually so being from Austin, I was going to South by Southwest uh, Interactive very very early because I was starting I was, you know I was working for tech companies basically right out of school, and so I got very inundated with just. Uh, use the word bacchanalia, which I'm gonna have to look up later. Thanks, Jeff, for making me feel dumb. But um, 
<laughs> like you're in this, you know, you go to you go to South by Southwest, and I, and the original intent of South by Southwest was kind of the original intent of Austin, which was like this small removed community of of smart, weird people, you know, either doing a lot of nothing or every once in a while doing some cool projects together. And some of that's tech, some of that's art. You know, you've got all this great music history that comes out of Austin, and you know, South by Southwest Interactive was started out like a few like tiny minds, or sorry, a, a gather a tiny gathering of of a lot of really creative, innovative minds. And as always happens, you know, people who are doing cool stuff draw attention to what they're doing, whether they intend to or not. And so South by Southwest has sort of become this like mass orgy of like advertising agencies who are working with tech companies and Target. And they're, you know, like the, the game that you play at South by Southwest is don't pay anything to eat or drink while you're there. And it's a very easy game and everybody wins. Um, because you like walk into some booth. I literally walked into this like Doritos mashable thing and they were like, Hey, we've got like, like Cuban sandwiches on a grill. And by the way, how many mojitos would you like before you walk out the door? And you know, it's like, I want nine Cuban sandwiches and twice as many mojitos. And, and by the way, Oh, I'm here for work. Wait, what? Um, and so I wrote, I, I, after, you know, this one year at, at South by Southwest where I was like, you know, you're out all night and then you're trying to get up in the morning to be productive again. But I didn't find anything that was actually like useful for my time there. And, and I, I wrote a blog post that actually got quoted in the New York times, um, the next year about like South by Southwest isn't a tech conference anymore. I think it's a tech festival. And if you think about it more like a festival rather than a conference, you know, like it, it's, it changes, you know, your, your perspective on it. Um, and that was around the time that like XOXO and yes by yes yet, or yes by yes, yes, were coming out to so like XOXO. I don't think they're going to do it anymore, but it's this really cool conference in Portland where they just had creators come and share their creations. Um, and then yes by yes, yes was happens down in Palm Springs in, in Southern California every year. And that's like, you know, they just basically take over this hotel for a weekend and a bunch of really smart people come and hang out. And so I think that, you know, if you look at like these big conferences, part of the purpose of them is like, hey, we're a big company like Amazon reInvent. Like they're just there to like show you a bunch of cool stuff and then facilitate a lot of conversations. And that, it has a different purpose than like the Microservices Practitioner Summit might um, because you can just um, like it's it's designed to like be something where you're solving problems as opposed to being very vendory. Um and I, I think when you go to a big conference, like as an attendee, you have to understand that the organizer has spent the last year of their life putting this together and they're going to make, they're going to facilitate interactions between you and, and people that you need to talk to as much as they know how to. But you have to take that into your own hands and have a plan for where you're going to go and who you want to talk to and what you want to get out of it. And you have to be relentless about it because otherwise the, um, as, uh, a wise podcaster once said the bacchanalia of food and drink and seduction is going to distract you from like what you actually came there to do. And you're just going to be exhausted at the end of it and go, oh, what, what did I get out of this? Well, this, by the way, it is totally illustrative of why I left Austin and probably to some degree why you left Austin, where tech is a lifestyle. It's a let's go to work and then after 4.30 p.m. let's go chill at Barton Springs and have a mojito. And in San Francisco, it's like let's work our asses off and make that like a very separate uh, – uh, anyway, I don't want to go on a tirade here, but um, I think I think what you said where you know t it has gone – you know, South by Southwest may have gone – and you know, I'm sure South by Southwest is so big – that you could, you know, take five different people and they have five different experiences at South by Southwest these days. But with, you know, the centricity is a festival. It is no longer a uh, maybe intellectual focused, uh, you know, hey, let's talk about new technology and how it's going to change the world sort of thing. It's more like a, hey, let's talk about new technology and get wasted and like, Anyway, it's, so uh, it's, it's, no, it's it's Silicon Valley on spring break in Austin, and that's that's right. 24 7 365 and that's i mean and that's part of what austin is um different than san francisco um that's a, that's a whole other conversation you're right but but again like how do you how do you actually like provide value for your attendees i think it, it really just comes down to like what do you like have a purpose and again the microservices practitioner summit like at when we were talking about this at data wire like the idea was how do we 
um, take all these questions that we know people are asking, um, we know people are trying to solve, but they're not solving them out in public. They're not, you know, a lot of this, a lot of this internal knowledge is in the hands of some really brilliant people who are actually smarter than the rest of us. Like, let's just be honest, like Matt Klein, Susan Fowler, like these people are just absolutely brilliant. Like Susan Fowler used to work at CERN doing particle physics. Like I'm not, there's nobody's trying to hire me to go work at CERN, but, but the problems that she's solving and, and, and the things that she's doing, like there are engineers all over the place who are trying to like, trying to wrap their heads around these, these problems that have already been solved internally at these various companies. And so how do you actually like put that out in the forefront and, and share that from a community perspective and from a values of open source perspective. And that was really what what the summit and, and DataWire were, were trying to accomplish there. And what's, what was really awesome was that people actually want to share. And I think that was the thing where when we started doing microservices, we just tried to talk to every single smart person we could find. And every time we had a conversation, we're like, oh my goodness, we just learned all this stuff. And then we realized, and then when we would repeat some of the smart things that we learned from someone else to the next smart person, they'd be like, oh, well, I have these smart things to say, but those are some pretty smart things you just told us. And we're like, we didn't come up with it. We learned it from someone else. And so we said, we should just put all these people together in a room because all the smart people have figured out all these different smart things, but they're not talking to each other. And so that's literally how we started the summit. So Austin, you you touched on marketing uh, there. You were talking about, you know, the Doritos booth with the Cuban sandwiches. Uh I I I find I find the 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 developer marketing stuff to be so interesting as well uh and you really see it in full force at some of these conferences like when you walk around these giant expo halls and you see five different cloud service providers and five different monitoring companies and they're all presenting a slightly different version of the world um so let's talk about products let's talk about vendors um Richard, you're working on DataWire, and I know you're looking at a bunch of different product opportunities in the microservices environment, and there's so many of these different verticals. I mean, you've got distributed tracing companies and monitoring companies and service proxying companies. Do you have a mental model for the taxonomy of the different types of vendors and uh, what, where the good business opportunities are? Yeah, I think those so so the way I think about it is at a bare minimum if you want to do microservices you need some way to develop those microservices you need a way some way to deploy those microservices and some way to run them. And if you think about development that just means a dev environment with all the tools like git and it really it's git and an IDE and a debugger depending on sort of how you like to develop right from a deployment standpoint you need a deployment pipeline that works well with microservices um, so you actually get your stuff running and then to run you need some sort of container orchestration thing and then as you get more sophisticated you need service proxies and monitoring and that kind of thing but the question that we when we talk to organizations what do you use for development what do you use for deployment what do you use to run the stuff and as you get more sophisticated and you add more services, hire more engineers, what you need in each of these categories gets to be quite a bit more sophisticated. Does that make sense? It does. No, it's, it's interesting because a lot of these different areas, they look like small markets at first. And then as you zoom up close to them, it becomes a very big market. Like, oh, we're doing distributed tracing for AWS. Like, oh, that's what your entire company is about? It's like, yes, that's all we do, and we make very good money doing it. It's very interesting that, you know, there are these companies that can handle, that can, you know, take on everything. Or, or I mean, <clears throat> even, even something like New Relic. Like, when New Relic got started, people were probably like, okay, so they just do monitoring? And then it's like, yeah, monitoring is a gigantic business. Um do you feel like the software company ecosystem, is it large enough to sustain the number of developer tools companies that are coming up? Because a lot of them are, you get a venture-funded business, and they focus on one specific thing, and you look at it, and you're like, is that enough to provide venture returns? Oh, I think it's really hard. I think developers are so picky, right? And open source is a terrible business model. Like, let's just get that all on the table, right? Um, the other thing that I think is interesting is I think that the answer to your question is, I don't think it is, but I do think that there are opportunities and 
The reason why I don't think there is an opportunity for you know, millions of developer companies is because developers are picky, open source is a crappy business model, and most importantly, I think that 20 years ago, you could make a pretty good business building infrastructure software, right? Um, and by infrastructure software, I mean 20 years ago, you know, you had BEA WebLogic as an app server and IBM WebSphere as an app server, and they made billions of dollars. And you could also buy ATG or ColdFusion, and you know, probably 20 other things, right? Um, but today, no one pays money for an application server. And even if you try to create a company to make the next generation app server, there's going to be an open source thing that's just going to get more community and move faster, or one of these guys like Google or Lyft or, or Uber, they're going to open source something and then they're going to destroy your business. And so I think that today things have evolved to the point where it's really hard to build a company around infrastructure type software because it has to be open source, it has to be free, and you've got companies that are willing to just open source stuff and keep on investing in it. Um, but what I think that there's opportunity for is the value-added layers on top of that infrastructure software, because at the end of the day, it's really still pretty hard to use, right? Envoy, what's an example of that? The, what's the value-added layer? So a classic example is UI, right? So Envoy has no UI. And so to configure Envoy requires, in fact, Matt actually in the documentation, he wrote, uh, we wrote this other program that generates configuration files for Envoy because Envoy configuration files are too complex. And you're like, oh my goodness, right? You literally have to write another program to generate config files for this other thing that I'm about to deploy. And your head kind of explodes. Yeah, and, and then he's uh, like, then we, had to, then we had to write a config validator for it. Right, exactly. And so you're like, oh my goodness, this is actually really complicated. Can I just get a UI for this thing? Right, and I don't know if you can make money building a UI for Envoy or not, but I think that's the trend that you start to see is people starting to build UI on this type of stuff or pre-integrating a lot of these different pieces together, right? So, you know, one of the things that we're doing at DataWire is we're helping companies take, instead of saying, here's this massive ecosystem, go build your own thing, we're saying, we're going to take Kubernetes, we're going to pull on AWS, we're going to stick Envoy on top of it, we're going to pre-integrate a dev environment and a deployment pipeline for you. So you don't really need to think about it, it's just going to do what you need it to do. And lots of companies like that, right? And so, so that's kind of, I think, where you're no longer, we're not really writing a lot of infrastructure software. We're putting in patch, pull requests and sending stuff upstream when we find a bug. But we're really trying to give you value around how you tie all this stuff together to solve a bigger problem as opposed to, hey, here's the service proxy that you're just going to deploy. You know, the offering of we're going to layer a UI on top of Envoy sounds like a great lifestyle business, but it sounds like there might be a different capital structure that's needed for that kind of thing. How, how does the the venture model or the fundraising world look today or how how does that world look at these different businesses because if i'm a venture capitalist these days probably there are a hundred companies coming to me every week that are saying hey i've got the super i'm doing distributed tracing for architectures that use cassandra and you're like am i supposed to invest in that and maybe you just say no go talk to this micro angel investor or how, do, do you have a picture for the how the fundraising market's going these days for microservice-based businesses? I think that people are viewing it with, there's a higher bar for raising funding, right? And by higher bar, I think to get seed capital, you really need to show some proof of market momentum. It's not enough to just have a business plan or an idea. So whether you've and, and I don't think it's like a huge amount of market momentum. They don't necessarily expect you to have millions of downloads, although that would be nice. It's just, hey, I've built this product and I have hundreds of users that I think can get to thousands of users if I could just put a little bit more money into some a better blog, right? And there's these 10 features like that require a lot of work, like Windows support that I can't ju just do at night and um, and on the weekend. And I think... I think if you are able to show a little bit of momentum, then I think most investors that I know would be willing to cut you at least a, a check to get started just to see if there's something there. Okay. And Austin, 
you work in developer marketing or engineering marketing, as you're trying to cut through this space and understand what developers are thinking or how to craft messages that will appeal to developers, what are some of the counterintuitive lessons that you've learned? (laughs) I love that question because I have a really, really good answer that I've thought through about this. Um, When I first started talking to DataWire, um, the DataWire CTO and architect, uh, Rafi Schloming, um, pulled me into an office and he goes, he sits me down and, and looks at me very sternly and goes, how do you sell to developers? And, and that's not what Rafi's voice sounds like, but I'm, you know, a little bit of dramatic emphasis. Um, and I looked at him and I said, developers are really easy to sell to. And he looks at me like every developer will look at you when you say something that they don't believe because no developer believes that they're easy to sell to. And his, um, he immediately looked at me like you're full of shit. And, um, and that's exactly what I wanted him to do because here's the thing is that developers are easy to sell to, um, if you have a really, really solid product and it's easy for them to get access to, um, if you've built something that's valuable and solves problems, um, all you need to do is, is get their attention long enough and make it easy for them to read some docs and play around with it, implement it in a, in a sandbox or like a free, with a free sign on or, or, or get them started on a small project. Because if the tech is actually valuable, engineers being so truth oriented, um, and you know, all they care about at the end of the day is like, did it do what you said it was going to do? And did it solve my problem? And if it does, and they have a great experience about it, then developers are actually going to take care of a lot of the marketing for you because you've built something that's very, very useful for them. And by walking in the door and saying, um, you guys are easy to sell to, I've gotten their attention and made them want to prove me wrong all in with one simple statement. Or if you say something about the technology, like that they also don't believe, but that is true about it, then you know there, uh, there's sort of this immediate response of, I don't believe you and I'm going to prove you wrong. Because at the end of the day, if you're an engineer building some of this architecture, you're not going to take anybody's word for whether it works or not. You want to actually see for yourself um, how it's going to play with your particular app and your particular infrastructure and, and, th- and your languages, all that. So, um, you know, so it doesn't matter like so much what you say, as long as you get people connected to the technology. And that's, that's sort of where I think about that's, that's how I start with all this stuff. Um, you have an honest conversation. You say, this is what it does. You, uh, pique people, pique people's interest and then make it very easy for them to find out for themselves if it solves their problem or not. Um, and so long as the product is, is powerful and, and useful, you develop credibility over the, you know, by, by getting them to play around with it and saying it does good things. Um, and the other thing is just being honest about stuff and being actually genuinely helpful. Like going back to the summit, like, you know, you know, data wire organized that, but the purpose of it, um, was to, um, get information from around the industry rather than pitch one thing or another. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's, that's really key to being successful in a developer community. It's that counterintuitive, like just try and be like, um, like don't, don't necessarily like come at it just from a revenue standpoint, come at it from a, how can we solve really, really interesting problems? Um, I was talking to, um, someone at GitHub the other day about, Hey, why can't we like, you know, if I started an open source project, why can't I capture an email so I can follow up and, and talk to these developers? And their response back to me was, that's what the readme is for. The fact that you can't email gate something we view as a feature for the developer, not, you know, rather than a, mm. rather than a bug for you, because mm. if they find something that's useful, they're going to want to, they're going to like want to jump in your Slack <laughs> or want to yeah. sign up for your listserv, you know, wh- wherever you're at, they're going to come find you because they're like, shit, this is useful. I want to use it. And, and so from a developer marketing perspective, your job is just to like, um, grease the skids all the way to, like from a product adoption standpoint as much as right. possible and, and then make it easy for them to find you when they do have questions because once they've got questions um, and they're getting value out of it, 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 the momentum starts picking up and, and it becomes unstoppable. That, well, that's such a good point about GitHub and I think a broader point there is GitHub is not LinkedIn for developers. They could have tried to do that, but they basically put their foot down and said, we would have conflicting incentives if we were GitHub for developers. Developers would see through those conflicting incentives and they would have a reason to go somewhere else. Um, 
So yeah, I, I agree with you that that developers are thrifty, skeptical shoppers. We're nearing the end of our time here. I I want to get a picture from both of you where you see the world of microservices going. And this is such a buzzwordy question. So I, I and I also think it's just basically it's the equivalent question of asking where is backend software development going. But you're free to answer it however you like. Let, let me let me take that first from Richard because I think my answer is going to be shorter and less impactful. But I think that well, my hope is that it becomes less buzzwordy and become it, it gets integrated into the lexicon and people understand that it's you know it has like microservices has particular uses and 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 also has particular like non-use cases. Um, so I'm hoping some more nuance comes in there. And then as more and more companies adopt this, I think we'll see those patterns begin to emerge. Um, but I'd like, I'd like to see people have less of a knee-jerk reaction to it over, over the course of the coming you know, months and years. Yeah, I mean, I definitely would echo what Austin says. Right? I think right now we're getting to the point where people have a knee-jerk reaction on microservices as a buzzword. And what I hope, and we're starting to see a little bit of this, is that microservices is now evolving into less of a term for an architecture, but more of a term around a methodology for building software. And that methodology is about really rapid updates. It's about having small teams of developers actually working together instead of one big organization Right, and those are all principles that I think everyone can kind of get on board with. Right, you want to get to continuous delivery. You don't want to have big centralized infrastructure. And then the question becomes, what is the technology platform that you need to enable this? But there's a big cultural shift, and I think and hope that people will start to recognize that microservices isn't just about the technology; it's about the people and the process. And they're going to start thinking about how do I apply this to my organization? Because I do think that. If it's done right, once you hit a certain degree of scale, and that scale is actually pretty small, we, we're seeing companies with 10 developers even struggling with some of these challenges and seeing microservices as a solution for this. I think once you sort of get to that point, I think you're going to see a massive increase in productivity. And I do think that this will actually change how people start to approach developing cloud-native applications. Okay. Well, Austin and Richard, thank you guys both for joining me today, and thanks for having me as a uh, press member at the Microservices Practitioner Summit. I enjoyed the attendance. We're really glad you got to come out, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff.